All right, back again now to talk about Judith Butler's Undoing Gender. Um, before we jump into that, a few things to say. Uh, Instagram, obviously, you can find me on there if you want to see pictures of my cats, mostly. Uh, Patreon, for anyone that can contribute to that, that would be great. Um, and also, you can find this in podcast form because that is the best way to listen to these. Uh, and also, to shout out to some of my patrons, there's Nicholas, James, Matt, and Sebastian, who have been extremely helpful uh, in keeping this going. Now, I want to waste not waste a whole lot more time, uh, but there are a few things to say before kind of jumping into this text. Firstly, it needs a content warning for anyone um, who might be curious or who might need one, uh, because she writes about suicide, transphobia, gender-based violence, including a whole slew of other things, self-harm as well. So it's good to kind of have that awareness before jumping into this, because it could be quite triggering. Now, I also want to say that this text is a compilation, or it's a collection, I should say, of essays that Judith Butler wrote. So in my presenting them, they might seem a little bit um, disconnected. And that's because the subject matter doesn't always, uh, I guess, flow from one essay to the next. So for that reason, I'm going to try to, you know, guide them in such a way as to make a kind of coherent narrative. In the introduction, however, she does give us some way, some lens through which to understand the entire scope of the book, and that is through the very act of undoing, or what undoing does, hence the title, Uh, but we'll get into that. In fact, right now we will. So we're going to start here with the introduction titled Acting in Concert. So she says here that the concept of undoing uh, might apply to someone who becomes undone, in an oppressive or normative situation, or it might apply to an oppressive or normative framework becoming undone. So either there's an individual who becomes undone through some kind of mechanism that doesn't want them to be who they feel themselves to be, or we can imagine the entire system coming undone. And what might that portend? What might come from that? So the consequences of this are far-reaching especially because, as we know so far from Butler's work, gender does not, we are not born with it. It comes to us from the outside, and there are a number of forces that do, that do this, or that does this. Uh, so let's just, as a kind of blanket statement, take society as one example. So society imposes gender upon people. And this happens before you're born, right? Think of in the North American context and other parts of the globe, like gender reveal parties, for instance, where a color is supposed to determine how the baby will exist in the world, right? Whether it's pink or blue. And that, before the child is even born, before the child has any autonomy, determines who and what they'll be. Now, of course, this is characteristically absurd. So let's say, just for argument's sake, that there is such a thing as gender. It, it, it is consistent, it happens everywhere, and it has um, real effects. Even if we accept that, what we know to be, in this case, maybe the masculine, as just one of the two possibilities, varies widely. So no two quote-unquote men are the same. So there are a few things that are pointed to to be like, oh, well, look, these are the consistent attributes, and that's how we know that a man is a man. We can point to science, for instance. Take testosterone. And to that, I like to think about it as 
follows. Does that mean then that prior to the discovery of testosterone, gender wasn't real? Does that mean then that for most of human history, 99.9% of it, gender wasn't real? And if that was the case, how is it that science comes to inscribe upon these bodies a kind of, um, it kind of galvanizes that identity and makes it solid so that there's little room for mobility? Now that's one of the things that Butler's going to get at in this book, is to think about what it might mean to strip away that um, kind of normative or determinative power, like science, for instance, that says, you fit in this box because of X, Y, and Z factors. We are going to completely ignore all the science that says, you know, other than that. We are going to completely ignore all of the exceptions to those rules, and we are just going to stick within a very narrow frame of mind in order to impose what is very clearly a political and cultural uh, construct onto people. So now that we've established that there is some kind of cultural, political framework at, um, I guess, at play, I should also say that Butler doesn't just want to say that all gender is signification, all gender is language, and therefore we can just uh, mold it the way that we want. Butler thinks, or as she says in Gender Trouble, she's like, I don't know if there's a kind of real gender underneath our codes and conventions that are completely cultural. And she says, there might be, but the thing is, we have yet to actually understand what that is. And so for now, what we should be doing, and this is a kind of real, I think, the real American way, the real individualistic American way, would be to let people exist as they want to exist and see what might happen. Now, there is a very strong sense of irony here where people who exist as they want to exist are, in the eyes of many of our dominant institutions, not seen as being equal to those people that just kind of go with the flow, who accept their, you know, their gender identity as it was given to them at birth, so cisgender people, um, you know, people who engage in so-called normative acts of sexuality, and they are seen as being less than human. So the irony here is that in a, we, we currently live in a setting that really applauds and celebrates the idea of the individual, but it seems to put a very heavy restraint or constraint on what that individual can look like. So when people actually exist for themselves, that is, they exist in the way that they want to exist, they demonstrate themselves in the way that they want to demonstrate themselves, they move through the world in the way that they want to move through the world, then they are not seen as being, you know, paragons of individuality. They are instead looked upon as being aberrant, um, you know, um, mindless um, automatons just given over to a kind of radical left agenda. So they are then stripped of any autonomy in order to reinscribe the normative framework, which we know now is kind of the oppositionary force to individuality par excellence. So here we get into what might be maybe some of Butler's more problematic stances, one of, one of her more problematic ones, because there will be quite a few. And I'm going to be critical of Butler here, especially when it comes to uh, trans issues that, that um, she writes about. 
But right here she says, in the face of a normative framework, it would seem ironic for people who belong to the LGBTQ community to follow the dominant institutions. So the one that she takes aim at is gay marriage, where she says it it doesn't seem like gayness is something that is, I guess, oppositionary or antagonistic if it just kind of uh, seeks recognition in the system that oppresses it through marriage. So clearly there are some problems with this, especially when we consider the fact that gay marriage isn't this thing that's like actively celebrated in all walks of life. Gay marriage is something that is a very subversive act in, take the United States, for example, in many places. So it's not just some, you know, thing that works in the, in the favor of the system. It is still something that is condemned harshly. Now, this isn't to say that Butler is like trying to just uh, condemn marriage. She says that if people want to do it, do it. But she also wants to open the door for our legal, political, social institutions to recognize other forms of kinship, other forms of romantic bonding that include things like maybe non-monogamy, polygamy, polyamory. Those are all kind of the same thing, but or insert, you know, non-normative form of relation here. She wants those things to be opened up so that they can be accepted within the dominant framework. Now, if you're hearing this and you're getting, you know, maybe your red alarm bells are ringing because you might be saying, oh, well, it seems as though Butler just wants to expand the system. She just wants to make the dominant system broader to encompass more things. And so, you know, our Foucauldian alarm bells are going off and it's like, oh, that sounds like a productive use of power. That sounds like it just, you know, power just wanting to get its tentacles into everything or in the kind of Deleuzean sense so that it can better control them. For Butler, this project is never ending. And I think that that's what kind of saves her from those criticisms because she always wants these things to be transforming. And they transform for her in a Hegelian way. Now, what the hell does that mean in a Hegelian way? Well, and she, she counts herself as a Hegelian. What that means for her is that there are constant tensions between poles. One pole, you know, let's say has authority and another pole does not. Now, for Hegel, these poles don't just exist and never um, touch or never come into contact. They actually interact all the time. And when they interact what we see are new movements and new developments coming about through that. So it's not as though power kind of occupies a, a singular space somewhere and it commands, you know, with um, like a pure kind of authority. It instead is always subject to kinds of, um, I guess, changes to oppositionary forces that always bring the new, that allow for the new to be possible. Now, that is for her, I think, the way that, or, or for us, that we can get past those criticisms because Butler doesn't want to maintain that there's just, you know, one force out there and it just controls us and it just wants to suck everything up into it. We have to remember, and this, you know, is Homi Baba is someone who argues this really well, uh, that there's always going to be opposition, even in those places where we see opposition not to 
exist, where we see um, a kind of marginalization occurring. Now, this goes back to Gender Trouble, you know, her first kind of book, where she talks about uh, how drag, drag racing, drag racing, drag racing, what the hell, David, how drag races, <laughs> how drag races are subversive, and they're political for her. Uh, and we'll talk about later how she got some flack for saying that. But for now, just to kind of contextualize it, she sees the act of drag, which is from the outside, it might appear as a kind of reinscription of a gender binary. She sees the force of drag or the kind of potential behind drag in the fact that it disturbs the implicit association between sex and gender. That is, people born with a, a vagina do not need to act, you know, as the, the gender reveal party claims, they do, need, do not need to act like, quote-unquote, women's, women's, women. So kind of in the face of this, she recounts or presents some conflicts within the feminist community, what, you know, we'll just call right now the feminist community or the gender studies community, between... Uh, trans activists and some queer activists. Now, this is by no means to say that any people in either of these camps hold these views. This is just something that a problem that she identifies here, where she presents the people belonging to the queer camp who hold that gender is itself oppressive, and therefore, if anyone presents in a gendered way, or in a way that demonstrates one of the two genders, then therefore they are reinscribing the system. They are perpetuating the system. Whereas for many trans activists, that is seen as an erasure of who they believe themselves to be. If a trans man wants to dress like, act like a man, who's to say that they cannot do that? That he cannot do that? For that would be to then kind of police which is in itself another reinscription of a system that tries to control people. Now, Butler sides on the, in this case, what we very simply characterized as the trans activist stance. She aligns with that one to say that there is a kind of implicit uh, challenge to the system being done in that act of disturbing the association between sex and gender. Now here we propel ourselves into chapter one, titled Beside Oneself on the Limits of Sexual Autonomy. So here she begins to ask the question, whose lives are considered livable? Whose lives are considered grievable? And how much of this is kind of predicated upon a conception of the human, an idea of the human, that emerged, you know, for those familiar in insert century here, 18th century you know, Europe, 17th century Europe, who knows? You know, this was a gradual thing that came about. We have uh, the French to thank for it to some extent, Talleyrand specifically, but that's neither here nor there. Now, this question is really pertinent when we consider the queer community in, you know, the 80s and 90s and up till now uh, who suffered uh, violently from AIDS and were given very, very, very little governmental support in the United States, which, you know, for many queer people was a sign that these, uh, uh, those people who were diagnosed with AIDS were, were considered less than human. They were considered less than anyone else. Now, the type of grief 
experienced by people who go through loss or experience loss presents something interesting for Butler. And this isn't to say that she's celebrating it, but it does reveal to her something that is profoundly uh, captivating. And that is how in grieving, we reveal the extent to which our connection to ourselves is predicated upon our connection to the people that surround us. So if we lose someone close to us, and if anyone has experienced that, you obviously have my condolences, um, but if we experience that, we experience a loss of a self, of ourself. And in that, we do not feel ourselves to be ourselves because we have lost that connection. Now that for Butler is very interesting and it's very important because her, for her it reveals the extent to which our idea of ourself doesn't happen in isolation. It happens in contact with others. Now she ascribes to this a term, and it's a term we all know, it's ecstasy. For her ecstasy, looking at the, oh my god, the history of the word, um, what is that word again? The etymology, sorry, the etymology of the word ecstasy, you know, goes back to the Greeks, I assume, uh, which, which means to be outside of oneself. So in, the, in grief, we experience this kind of ecstatic moment where we are removed from ourselves because ourselves have been undone by losing this other, this person that is external to us, that, that has been instrumental in us reconciling ourselves. So she asks, of those people that have undergone this kind of undoing, an undoing of themselves, who have entered a kind of ecstatic moment, what does that community look like? That community of people who have become undone. Now, this doesn't just happen with grief. Anyone who is marginalized, anyone who is opposed by a system, and because Butler says that we attain recognition in our, or self-recognition in our relationship to others, to the world around us, if others and the world around us shut us out, then that means that we are essentially outside of ourselves. So she then thinks, what does this community of people who have been, who have entered the ecstatic, who have become undone, what does that community look like? Now, this community for her is a community that is formed under something different than the law, right? So the law being a normative institution that, I guess, subtends, that exists underneath all of the other relations of society, it opposes these people who, you know, are not recognized under it. The people that are not seen as human, who have undergone a kind of undoing. So these people are forced then to kind of galvanize their identity around something else. Now, it's difficult to say what exactly the singular thing is that this community uh, kind of coordinates itself around. And there's a reason for that. It's because this community is wholly autonomous. Each individual person has embraced a degree of individuality that is alien to those people underneath the law because they have found their own way. And by virtue of that, they do not have a kind of guiding umbrella that brings them all together. But this individuality is, is kind of, it's not like a kind of libertarian um, isolationism. It's more of a, um, 
it is it is more of an unsolicited experience that happens through things like trauma that happens through things well mostly just trauma actually some form of trauma that compels the person to exist in their own way now this is what kind of binds people together the guiding thread here is not like a thing like the law it is the common experience that these people have gone through in in this case a kind of trauma so she says that this might actually open the door for a nonviolent politics because once people have you know embraced this once people have gone through a kind of trauma they are less likely to inflict it for butler on anyone else so and that makes sense like many uh, marginalized communities are pretty nice to one another uh, because you know this kind of collective feeling of trauma especially if you consider intergenerational trauma or communal trauma it really serves the end of galvanizing a group identity that rely upon each other to survive so it's in their interest not to oppose one another now butler says that in our in the normative system where we embrace a kind of individuality that you know is wholly violent what we see is a kind of um, indifference to violence committed on others. Like the example she gives is like people who die in AIDS, every, in AIDS, in Africa every year from AIDS. Africa, the just that you know big blanket term for so many countries. Or you know maybe another topical example would be like drone strikes, where there's such a detachment from the loss of life we can barely be said to have experienced that loss at all. So these humans in these settings, because we are so individuated under the law that binds us, right? It, we are seeing a simultaneously simultaneous closure as well as an opening. So we are kind of confined to our individualism underneath the law. So we lose sense of community, we lose sense of care, things like that. Now under that, what we see is the development or it kind of fosters um, a refusal to recognize the humanity of others. So that's what makes it easy to drop bombs on people in different parts of the world. For if they are less than human, then we have no guilt to experience. But on maybe a less dire note, uh, she also considers the way that non-monogamous relationships aren't recognized under the law. So if people are non-monogamous, then that or what often happens under the law is those people who might not be a primary partner, let's say, for instance, there's a couple who, who are married, but they happen to be non-monogamous. Only the married couple, the two people that are married, kind of receive the state recognition, the kind of recognition under the law that the other couplings do not get to experience. Now, for Butler, it's not enough to just recognize these differences. That is, different ways of organizing community of organizing relationships of organizing grief of organizing you know communities it is we must also recognize the capacity of these differences to push us into a kind of transformative potential now the, okay there are some i think it's okay to be a little bit wary about that because it romanticizes these communities a lot it kind of puts a heavy burden on these communities to say like oh our retribution exists in these, these, these communities that oppose the system just by virtue of them being different than the system. So while, you know, we can be very 
um, I guess we can really appreciate what Butler's doing. It's important to also see the limits to this, but anyways, I digress. So to conclude this little chapter here, uh, she says that she doesn't want to just advocate for a kind of location-specific politics, you know, one that might be, you know, come down purely to a relativism or that would try to just find local solutions to big problems. She she likes things like international human rights, but she needs to see them be expanded. She she wants to see them include those people that have been forgotten. And here that puts us into chapter 2, gender regulations. So, here we get into some interesting uh, qualifications that she she makes here. For her, it's wrong for us to think that gender is imposed upon us by regulatory institutions, like schools, like hospitals, like, insert institution here. Uh, For her, gender is itself a regulatory mechanism, and that it would be wrong to think that we could have gender without it being regulatory, as though there's a kind of pre-regulatory gender or pre-institutional gender because gender is those things. Our gender is both regulatory and institutional. So let's think about an example here. Look at post-apocalyptic um, narratives like films. Uh, like uh, the, the best example is A Quiet Place, you know, the John Krasinski film with uh, Emily Blunt. Uh, where in this post-apocalyptic world where all institutional life has crumbled, there is still maintained very clear, um, you know, gender roles. Is it natural that women do laundry? Is it natural that men go out and, and hunt things? I don't think so. I mean, look at animal life and we quickly find out that that is not at all the case. But anyways, gender continues despite the fact that institutional life has crumbled. So it is in itself a kind of residual institution in these in these narratives. Or we think of like, you know, prehistoric narratives like I don't know, dinosaur movies where quote unquote female dinosaurs act in a certain way and quote unquote male dinosaurs act in another way and so on and so forth. Like these examples are rife throughout our um, all of our popular culture in the North American context. Now, despite this, Butler doesn't want to just leave gender behind. She doesn't just want to say, we have to then silence or oppose all gender. She says that maybe gender holds the conditions for its own undoing. And that is because it is a very malleable thing. It is something that has changed drastically across time. And this might explain why there are such strict measures in the political community, in the scientific community, in the you know cultural community, to essentially restrict what gender can be why is it necessary for you know certain internet trolls to fight so violently for gender to be you know uh, a kind of man woman thing if it was natural if it was natural we wouldn't need to like it's so it's absurd to think that we we need to actively be fighting for what is natural unless of course it isn't because if it's not natural then should we be fighting for it? Or should these people be fighting for it? Now here we get into some of the more rigorous philosophical stuff dealing with Lacanian psychoanalysis, which is extremely complicated and I am by no means 
an expert on this, but I will try. And I should say, to kind of preface it, she's going to take aim at Lacanian psychoanalysis here for reinscribing a gender binary that she's trying to move away from. So, here's some context. In Lacanian psychoanalysis, there is something called symbolic law. Now, that is quite simply the law of a kind of paternal father. Let's insert other institutions here. The law of, you know, society, codes, conducts, not, not what is considered no the norm, but, you know, the, things like the police and, and, you know, royalty and the bureaucracy that impose certain laws on the public. Like, it's a kind of real thing. It's called symbolic law, but it is, is real. Now, this symbolic law, which also relates to the incest taboo, which we'll get into a little bit later, are not natural things for Lacanians. They are universal, though. They exist everywhere, but they are not natural. They are a product of a kind of Oedipal dimension that we cannot get out of, but that the possibility for its undoing is almost, is almost possible, but not quite. So Butler opposes the symbolic law to the norm. So norms are much more contingent. Norms change across different settings. Whereas the symbolic law, which often includes things like a kind of paternal father figure authority, always in relation to a kind of feminine passivity, and it is their, their um, tension that kind of causes a child to reproduce a, a paternal, a, a, a young boy, to reproduce a paternal attitude and displace his affection for his mother onto other women who he sees as being passive and you know i'm sure you know the script uh but yeah and that replicates itself in all of institutional life that we exist in now this symbolic law restricts any possible changes to how gender is constructed for butler now in both of these cases that is the symbolic and the norm or the symbolic law and the norm there is a desire to maintain the status quo to some extent Whereas the, where the symbolic sees it as being a kind of universal that we can't get out of, the norm might change, but the norm then, because it might change, um, kind of solicits, it, it motivates a very a heavy reactionary maintenance of its um, kind of essence, you know, by people who want to keep the system the way it is. Now for Butler, what is the most interesting is that we challenge the very ideas assumed of both the symbolic law and the norm, things like the gender binary. So she gives an example of like sexual harassment, which is obviously a lamentable topic, but it's, it's the one she gives, um, where it would be wrong to try and... For, actually, no, it wouldn't be wrong. But she says that the real um, effort to undo sexual harassment would be first to undo the gender binary. It wouldn't be to just say, hey, that man who harasses that woman is bad and he should be punished. Of course, that should happen. But Butler traces this kind of harassment to things like the symbolic law that teach young boys, or at least the idea about it, because it does exist in institutional life. Whether or not it's universal is what is up for contention here, is what is contended. But it does exist. We could say that. Um... It is what teaches young boys that they can keep doing these things because it's, you know, boys will be boys. This is just how men and women interact with one another. The masculine and the feminine interact with one another. 
That's the idea that they're being sold. Now it's from here we move into chapter three, and this is the heaviest chapter by far. Uh, and this might be the one that most people, if you you know you're taking a course or something, you'd have to read because it's a pretty important essay in uh, in Butler's kind of well um, oeuvre oeuvre. Uh, but yeah, so chapter three, doing justice to someone, sex reassignment, and allegories of transsexuality. Now, some of the language that she uses is severely outdated, so I'm just not going to, I'm just going to say the, what, the proper terms, at least today, uh, what, as they are accepted. Um, and this chapter also talks about the case of David Reimer. Um, and Butler switches David's pronouns depending on what David identified as at the time. So David went through a few different developments as far as gender identity goes. And I'm, I struggled with this. Uh, I just want to refer to David as him. Whereas Butler, during a period of time when David was inscribed with a kind of femininity, refers to him as her. I'm not going to do that out of respect for what David wanted. Um, yeah. So I should say that this is about David Reimer, as I've already said, uh, who, between the time that Butler wrote this and the time that it was published, she, she had learned that he had actually committed suicide, which is extremely tragic, um, given the circumstances. And it also, for me, it, gives, it makes it difficult for me to really digest what Butler is saying, and I'll explain that along the way. But there is, in Butler's words, a hinging upon a kind of possibility on this already oppressed person saying things like, oh, you know, David does something. Just by virtue of him being different, he does something for, you know, a cause. And I don't know if David would believe that. And I think it's wrong for us to say or to impose that narrative onto marginalized people. But in any case, we'll, we'll go through it. So David was born with an X and Y you know, chromosomes. So for all intents and purposes, he was born a boy. But there was a, a, a procedure went wrong where most, that's the sound of my cat, in case you're curious. Uh, a procedure went wrong where most of his penis ended up being burned off. And so, my cat. And so his parents, uh, about a year later, so he was about one, almost two years old at this point, a little, about, um, uh, maybe 20 months, give or take, at this point, um, saw an ad on television about uh, sex reassignment surgery by uh, a guy named John Money, who was talking about, uh, you know, trans and intersex surgery. And then the, his parents, David, David's parents, decided that this surgery might be best for David, you know, to have him reassigned as a girl because he didn't have his penis. So he grew up as a girl then instead of a boy. So he was castrated and had the preliminary work for vaginal construction done, which they held off on completing until he was older. So he became Brenda at this point uh, and was put under supervision by the doctor named John Money at what was called the Gender Identity Institute. So then between the ages of eight or nine, give or take, uh, 
Brenda began to feel the desire to do culturally masculine things like playing with toy guns or dressing like a boy. So in response to this, doctors and psychiatrists insisted that she complete, he complete, his transition by taking estrogen and completing his vaginal construction. But he refused. He saw these as being things that he didn't want because he was identifying as a boy or with boys, and he couldn't understand why. And so he didn't like the fact that he was, you know, being expected to act more feminine or to be more feminine. And at this point, he became David again, uh, having his breasts removed and having a penis constructed. Now, this is where it gets really complicated. Not that it wasn't already complicated. But John Money, the guy who was supervising David, um, kept pretty extensive notes. And during that time that David was Brenda, was celebrating how much of a success this gender reassignment surgery at this very young age for David to become Brenda, how successful that was. Now, this is problematic because it doesn't seem to be the case. David seemed quite upset as Brenda, and David seemed to be not happy with who he was. But that didn't stop John Money from making the case that gender is totally fluid. Anyone can identify however they want if, you know, it's done at the right age with the right kind of supervision and care. So people took this up. People believed, hey, if, if any, we raise any child to act in a certain way, then, you know, they're going to essentially be like that. And that gender is essentially fluid. Now, in response to this, when people became privy to the fact that Brenda transitioned back into David, they then said, look, biology is destiny. David was born a boy. And no matter what kind of reassigning was done to him, no matter what kind of psychological primers were given to make him identify as a woman, or as a girl, I should say, um, he wanted to return back. And that biologically, he was a man, and therefore, he should, you know, exist as a man. So, let's go back. In the case of what happened to David, where he was severely burned and lost his penis, essentially, there are two sides, Butler kind of recounts, to that, or that would posit solutions to that, what I will put in air quotes as a problem to that issue. So one side believes that these children should be essentially raised as girls because it is easier to construct a vaginal tract than a, than a penal one. And the other thinks that because all these intersex folks have a Y chromosome, that is enough to justify them being raised as a boy. So one side is, I guess, more pragmatic, sees there to be more value in maintaining something of a of a uh, an effective sexual organ, or <laughs> sexual, um, you know, of an organ, in this case, a vagina. And the other sees but the biology, that is the existence of a Y chromosome, to be enough for uh, the child to be raised as a boy. So in either case, Butler says that we are already moving away from what is natural, because in either case there needs to be um, medical intervention, like surgery, 
the um, introduction of hormones to essentially make that person identify with one of our two very narrow genders. So intersex activists have certainly taken this up to say, like, look at the violence that is done on bodies that do not comply with the norm. Look at the violence that we have undergone, you know, for those intersex people that were assigned uh, a gender at birth, were given surgery to kind of fit that gender at birth. So what is interesting for Butler is that there are these mechanisms at play that try vehemently to make bodies legible, to make them recognizable for a certain gaze, that is a scientific medical gaze in this, in this situation, in order to make them human, to make them recognizable as humans because of our very narrow conception of that. And what kind of world is it in which someone like Brenda could look at themselves in the mirror and say, I do not like this, which is all very cultural for Butler because one's dress has nothing to do with one's biology. Yet we live in a world where that is the case. And it seems incredibly strange that Brenda associated with guns and and masculine clothing because these things aren't natural. There's nothing natural about guns being associated with men. There's nothing natural about dresses being associated with women. These are just cultural things. But it reveals the extent to which our cultural proclivities, our cultural artifacts, determine us or determine who we are as a gender. And so this is where, for me, like I'm very cautious about this because Butler is really using David in a way that we don't know if David would agree with. We don't know if David would be on board with Butler or us using him as a kind of um, icon in this way. And so it's you have to always be careful about that. But now, moving on here to chapter four, undiagnosing gender. Now, how could we talk about gender without talking about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, what is called the DSM? You know, the, psycho, uh, uh, the psychology Bible that contains all of the kind of disorders, quote-unquote disorders and diseases that can affect the mind. The mind. Yeah, sure, the mind. Um, and how the DSM holds a kind of ambiguous place in the feminist community. So some queer and trans folks see it as a necessary component to them getting the proper care they need. So they want to be recognized in the DSM because that's a kind of institutional acknowledgement of their lives. But then there are other activists who are a little bit more cautious and say that it, you know, the DSM reinscribes a kind of normativity that fundamentally opposes their bodies, that fundamentally opposes their identities. So Butler is obviously very careful with this and doesn't want to like take a side here because she sees that, you know, for many people it's important and for some people it's quite triggering and harmful. So instead of providing like a solution to this problem, she instead turns her gaze towards gen- what is considered gender identity disorder, the kind of history of that. So here she essentially traces it to the pathologization of homophobia, where if you're if young boys and girls were preoccupied with things of the opposite sex, they would be believed to be gay. So if a young boy liked playing with Barbie dolls, he would be assumed to be gay, or if a young girl liked playing out with the boys, she would be assumed to be gay. 
So she then presents uh, a figure where some conservative groups believe that if you could identify gender identity disorder, that is uh, seeing a young girl acting like a boy or a young boy acting like a girl, if you could identify that, there was a 75% chance that that person will grow up to be gay. In the face of this, though, Butler makes a pretty interesting point. So she argues that these kids in the 75%, that is, the 75% of kids that will grow up to be gay, apparently, who exhibit traits of the other gender, are only considered homosexual because they are acting out heterosexuality performatively, just not with their genitalia. Which is interesting. Because we know that heterosexuality is the meeting of two genders. The meeting of men and women. But if you just act that way in yourself, that is, as a young girl, you act like a boy, that is not heterosexuality. That is homosexuality. And she says that that's kind of strange because what we are seeing is the same thing, heterosexuality just being exhibited on a kind of singular level. But she continues. So these people are acting heterosexual and this makes them gay, apparently. Of course, this completely disavows the masculine-presenting boys and feminine-presenting girls who are also gay. So why is heterosexuality the basis for gayness? Why is it that when we see a young girl being fascinated with boys' things, we then see that girl as being gay? It, It seems strange when we think of it, because in the heterosexual coupling, that is exactly what is expected. Each are expected to essentially comply to the desires, wills, aspirations of the other, at least in what I would consider to be a healthy relationship. So these assumptions, or this kind of 75% identification thing, assumes that only masculinity is attracted to femininity and only femininity is attracted to masculinity. Of course, there are problems about this. So what about, for instance, feminine presenting trans men who are into men? or those that are into women, or those into non-binary people, for example. Or, like, just a feminine-presenting man who happens to be into women. Like, what do we make of that? Does that not... Is, is that not a kind of homosexuality being enacted out, where someone who is feminine-presenting is into someone being feminine? It seems like that is, according to these kinds of groups, a kind of gayness being acted out there isn't the meeting of a masculine and a feminine it is a feminine and a feminine now in the face of this she says we shouldn't just get rid of like the dsm that you know pathologizes this or that contributes to this because she acknowledges that the dsm has institutional force so we can only do it if we have other structures in place that will pick up the pieces that will be prepared to kind of take over the institutional role that the DSM has, but that is more willing to accommodate or, you know, it imminently, that is within it, accommodates differences. So a lot is demanded of this. So it goes beyond just the DSM. The kind of doctor-patient relationship would need to be de-paternalized, you know, where the doctor assumes that, you know, they know what the patient needs. Like, if, if someone wants to transition they are interrogated pretty much and asked, you know, about their history, asked, you know, if this is the, like a thing they really want to do, being told that like these things aren't reversible or that this will leave an indelible mark on your body and so on and so forth. But Butler says, 
it's funny that we do that with trans people, but people, in her words, who get breast reductions or menopausal ingestion of estrogen aren't treated like that. Or men, you know, being prescribed Viagra, for instance, that have, has like hormonal effects. It's, it's interesting. In those cases, it's fine, right? You can do whatever you want with your body. As soon as it's about altering one's gender, one's gender, one's gender identity, then all of a sudden people, you know, put their arms up and scream about how that cannot happen. So she then uh, gives an example of a breast cancer patient who was denied coverage by her insurance company to have a complete mastectomy, so to, to have both of her breasts removed. So she had cancer in one breast and had that breast removed. But she, you know, to curb the risk of getting breast cancer in her other breast, just wanted to have both removed. She was denied coverage because um, she had to justify it as gender identity disorder so that she would be covered because unless she she, uh, attributed it to gender identity disorder, that is removing her other breasts, the insurance company didn't want to cover it because the other breast was for now cancer-free and the, the possibility of it having cancer was not enough for the insurance company to care. So it was only when she was able to claim that she wanted it to be done because of her gender identity disorder could she get coverage. So this is an example of like gender identity disorder being used incorrectly, but being used for, a, I, I would like to say, a good reason. So anyone that, you know, wants to undergo a kind of transition is, you know, they have their whole lives combed over to make sure that they are legitimate about it. And, and it's really like can be quite, I can only imagine quite triggering. It can be quite uh, traumatizing, you know, to have that happen, to have someone say, well, do you really like identify this way? Like, is this really something you want? Which is, it's, I, I don't know. It sounds heartbreaking and it is. It doesn't just sound like it. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to wrap this up here. That gets us into finishing chapter four and we'll start next time on chapter five. Uh, but for anyone that listened, that listened this far, I hope you enjoyed it. If, you know, I said anything that should be corrected, uh, let me know if you feel like putting in that labor. Uh, if not, then that's fine, I guess. Uh, if there's anything that I, you know, should know more about or anything I should look up or read, you know, feel free to send it my way. Uh, and yeah, take care.